Let's pray. Father, you are the great God of highest heaven. Our prayer is simply this morning, Lord, as we gather around your word opened to us, that you would receive the honor that you deserve. You have redeemed us. We confess that we are great sinners with no hope in this world. When you came to us, Father, we were dead. But you spoke life. As Jesus spoke to Lazarus, Lord, you spoke to us. And we came out of the tomb and you have um, called us to live according uh, to your commands. And so we pray this morning as we look into your word that our lives would grow into greater conformity uh, to the wonderful theology that we uh, confess together in unison. Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We'll be in Titus chapter 2. As you turn there, it is true that the doctrine of grace is one of the most precious truths in all of Scripture. And by grace, that's what we were singing about, by grace we mean that in Christ, God has poured out on His people unmerited favor of vast proportions. This truth of God's grace undergirds everything that we do as Christians. And it's a precious, sweet truth to us. We sing, we rejoice about it, we love to um, consider, to, to meditate upon God's grace. Yet, at the same time, there is perhaps no doctrine more abused than the doctrine of God's grace. Every variety of sin has at one point or another been justified by God being gracious. In the early days of the church, there were those who argued that because God was so gracious, people could uh, live lives of rampant sin. And in fact, the more that you sinned, the more God's grace abounded. And the Apostle Paul denounced this view as a wicked perversion of grace. Jude likewise had to deal with folks who, who said, um, or who rather turned, he wrote, they turned the grace of God into licentiousness or sensuality. These were people who had perverted God's grace, and in so doing, they denied Jesus Christ. And the apostles had no tolerance for those who would misuse, abuse God's grace as a grounds for living a careless life. And the reason for this, we know, is because grace actually transforms how you live. Grace actually transforms us. And it comes when it comes, when God's grace enters into our lives, it actually compels us to live lives that are holy. And to bring those, those often disconnected realms of our confessional theology, what we say we believe, and how we actually live. Grace compels us, drives us to, sh to shrink that gap more and more. Well, it seems that in Crete, 
that grace was being abused at some level. The Apostle Paul had sent Titus to this large island in the Mediterranean to appoint elders in a group of very young churches. And Paul and Titus had most likely planted these churches, but had left, and in their absence, a group of false teachers had emerged. These teachers Paul called rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. You see that in chapter 1 and verse 10. Their teaching uh, was having a, a, um, a dramatic effect on these young churches. Paul says they were, it was destroying families. Now, we don't know the content of their teaching. It is not exactly clear, but what, Paul, uh, what we do know is that Paul was concerned. These were young churches, and Paul was very concerned. He was especially concerned with the lifestyle of these false teachers. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. This is an important issue. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. They are detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. You can see that they were confessing to know God. They professed to know God, right? But their lives were somehow contradicting what they confessed to believe. Perhaps they made a good confession of faith. They could recite sound theology. They knew the Westminster Confession of Faith by heart. But their lives disproved everything they confessed. And this was a serious concern for Paul. It's a serious concern in the 21st century. There is always a temptation in our fallen, sinful uh, plight to live and be comfortable with a gap, a chasm between what we say we believe the Bible says and how we actually live. And, and the tragedy is that sometimes the people with the most biblical theology are the ones who live the lousiest lives. And that ought not to be. It's not acceptable. And so Paul commands Titus to appoint elders who would be able to, to put a muzzle on these false teachers, to keep them from teaching because their lives were contradicting what they were teaching. So they needed to be silenced. And that's chapter 1 of Titus. Then we come to chapter 2. And Paul gives the content and the grounds for the type of life that actually complements a good, sound theology. So chapter 1, we're, we're opposing false teachers, appointing elders. And then we come to chapter 2, and, and Paul is going to give his reasons for why uh, the, the Cretan Christians should live godly lives. Now our focus is really on verses 11 to 14. And here, Paul gives three reasons why the Christians in Crete were to live lives that complemented sound theology. And what we want to do this morning is, is look at these three reasons together. So if you'll stand with me and, and read for the reverence of reading God's Word. Titus 2, we'll read verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, 
righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. You may be seated. In one long Greek sentence that spans verses 11 to 14, Paul lays the foundation for a godly life, which in a word is the grace of God. The grace of God is the only foundation for a godly life. But Paul does more in these verses than just lay the foundation. He actually lays out an argument for why Uh, in contradistinction to false teachers, why Christians are to live lives that complement their theology. And we want to just look at his argument uh, together this morning. Let me give you it uh, to you in um, bullet points, and then we'll walk through each one uh, together. All right, first, you must live a godly life because your life is to be an affirmation of the saving grace of God. And by godly life, we're we're talking about a life that complements your theology. So second, you must live a godly life because your life as a Christian is under the ongoing training influence of the grace of God. And third, you must live a godly life because your life, Christian, is not your own, but it belongs to Jesus Christ. Let's walk through these. First, you, you must live a godly life. That is, a life that complements your good theology because your life as a Christian is to be an affirmation of the saving grace of God. Now, let me show you where I get that. We've already mentioned that there were false teachers uh, on the island of Crete who had crept into these, these young churches. But there was another dynamic that was equally burdensome and and concerning to the Apostle Paul, and that was the Cretan culture. Crete was an island, and it was notorious for its wickedness, even among pagan historians. uh, The Cretans were known for their greed, their materialism, um, their sensuality. And then the gospel came, and all of a sudden these people who were at one time marked by these Um, sinful characteristics are now believers and they're redeemed but they're immersed in a wicked culture a culture that if you look at Titus 1 and verse 12 uh, Paul quotes uh, cites one of the Cretan philosophers who said this Cretans are always liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons now that's harsh right If one of us said that about anybody, we would probably say, now that is a little bit general, right? Let's let's be a little more precise. But notice Paul's analysis. What does he say at the end of that? This testimony is true. They are liars, and they are evil beasts, and they are lazy gluttons. This is, it's, it's a, incredible. They were liars. They were. That's, they were known for this. They were evil beasts. And there is a bit of irony to this. Because they, were, um, because they were an island, 
they were able to get rid of, of, of these large animals that would actually threaten existence. So they were able to get rid of them and live a pretty peaceful existence without the fear of evil beasts. And whereas other societies had to worry about lions and tigers and, and other things, um, the Cretans didn't have to do that. But in the place of these wild animals, the Cretans had risen up and, and taken their place. And they were living like wild animals. You just imagine that, an island, and, and it's full of people who live like wild animals. There were also lazy gluttons, literally as lazy bellies. Lazy stomachs. These were people who lived like animals only to satisfy their sensual pleasures. Right? We could say they were hedonists. They, they only lived uh, for, for personal, selfish pleasure. Now, can you see that this deadly combination of false teachers and this culture that was so wicked, and the false teachers had come in and said, hey, it doesn't matter how you live. Just enjoy it. You can have your great theology and live however you want to live. This was a serious Serious problem. And this was the reason that in the book of Titus, Paul exhorts Titus to give special attention to good works. Right? So Titus is three chapters. And in seven different places throughout this short book, Paul commends good works. Listen to the way he concludes the whole book. Our people, verse 14 must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Paul was concerned with sound doctrine. We know that, right? We know that Paul was concerned with sound doctrine. But friends, we have to remember that Paul was also concerned with sound living. Right? And, and sound doctrine leads to sound living. So look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul then turns to exhort Titus. He says, But as for you, that is in, in distinction uh, from the false teachers who profess to know God but deny Him by their works, but as for you, speak or teach the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Right? Notice that he does not say teach sound doctrine here. He doesn't say that. He says, teach the things that are fitting with sound doctrine. Teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. The type of living that matches or, or, or uh, harmonizes with sound doctrine. And then notice, the next um, eight verses, he unpacks what that kind of living looks like. Starting in verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. Verse 3, older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. Verse 4, Younger women are to love their husbands and children. Verse 6. And on and on it goes. Notice though, why? Alright, so we, all of that is behavior. That's all the way you should live. But I want us to zero in on why. That's the question. Why? Why should we live this way, Paul? Why should we live this kind of life? Look at verses 3 to 5. Older women are to be reverent. Verse 4. To encourage younger women to live their, to love their families, and then verse 5, so that. So that why? The Word of God will not be dishonored. Live this way so that the Word of God won't be dishonored. 
Look at verse 6. Young men are to be sensible, to be an example of good deeds. Verse 8. To be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So if these young men do, do not live sound lives as God commands them to, then they will bring shame upon on God, upon the gospel, upon themselves, and also upon, Paul says, us, upon the church. The way they live can bring shame upon their confession. And then look at verses 9 and 10. These are very interesting verses. Bond slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything. And then verse 10, showing all good faith. Here we have another so that. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Live this way so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now this word adorn here is from the Greek word kosmeo. And it means to cause something to have an attractive appearance. Kosmeo, to cause something to have an attractive appearance. Can you think of an English word uh, that is very similar. What about cosmetics? Right? Cosmetics. To cause something to have an attractive appearance. The word, specifically in this context, I don't want to get myself in trouble. It's not about hiding imperfections. Not that there would be any imperfections that cosmetics would need to cover up. Um, But the word here specifically refers to a way of life that recommends or commends doctrinal teachings. So, so adorning means you adorn your life with, with things, good works, that recommend or commend the gospel. So for these slaves, they were to adorn their lives. It's the same language that's used in 1 Peter 3. You remember there, the wife of an unbelieving spouse is called to adorn herself with good character rather than with external trappings of of current beauty trends. The goal was that her life, her husband is unbelieving, and so the goal is that her life would adorn the gospel in such a way that it it would authenticate her theology before her unbelieving spouse. And so, win him over to the gospel by her good life. Now that's 1 Peter 3, 1-6. It was an evangelistic endeavor. I just want to notice, note that. This was evangelistic in nature. Live the way you live. So to this, unbelieving, uh, this, to this believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband, live in a way that adorns the gospel so that this unbelieving spouse will look at your life and say, how does she bear with me the way that she does? How is she so patient? How is she so kind? How, how, how in the world does she can admit that she's wrong? I can't do that. How, how does she come when she's wrong and confess her sin to me? Um, her life was to authenticate the gospel message. This is the same thing for the slave. The slave's life was to authenticate 
the gospel message in front of his unbelieving master so that the unbelieving master would be rebuked by the faithful life of the slave. It's an evangelistic endeavor. Now, Titus, Paul is not saying to the slaves or to uh, Paul's not, or Peter's not saying to the women, preach uh, the gospel, use words if necessary. That's not the message. The message is preach the gospel. Words are necessary, you have to preach with words. Right? There's no way that someone's going to know they're a sinner without words. And know that Christ has come to redeem sinners like us without words. But it's preach the gospel with words and adorn that gospel with a faithful life. That's the message. Now, we come to verse 11. With all that in mind, that's the context. We come to verse 11, and we can see what Paul is really doing here. Why should Cretan Christians live the lives that Paul, the way that Paul is commending them to live in verses 2 to verse 10? Because, or for, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Since God's saving grace has appeared, bringing forgiveness to all people, Christians who have experienced this grace are to live their lives in a way that affirms the saving grace of God. It's about evangelism. It's about gospel witness here. That's the context. Rather than live in a way that denies the gospel, Christians are to live faithfully, adorning their lives with good works in order to proclaim that the saving grace of God has appeared to men, old and young, to women, young and old, to slaves, to free, to every type of person. Grace has come. And friends, that's the gospel we preach And it's absolutely imperative that our lives do not contradict the wonderful truth of the saving grace of God. And that's Paul's argument. Let me just give you a couple of questions to ask yourself. First, does my life dishonor the Word of God? Let's get more specific. Does every aspect of my life my relationship with my spouse, my children, my boss, how I do my taxes, how I treat my employees, does that honor the Word of God? Is my relationships and these, these everyday um, areas of life, am I affirming the saving grace of God in these relationships? Or am I giving um, grounds for enemies of Christ to reproach the gospel? Here's another question. Does my life generally adorn the gospel? Can you, can you just think about your life? Does my life adorn the gospel? Now, I, I, I know I don't know you that well. <laughs> and I'm new here. Um, but I do know that you love the Lord. That's obvious. Um, and the people that love the Lord long to be more like their Lord. And so I know uh, the, the tension that you feel, the pain that you feel when there is a disconnect between your confessional theology and your life. And so I, I'm not here trying to, to make you feel bad. But what I am trying to do is, is renew our energies 
uh, to live faithfully and to examine ourselves, examine our lives, to, to make sure that we're walking faithfully um, and affirming the grace of God in our lives. So let me give you another question. Just as a summary, does my life affirm or deny my theology? That's a good question to wrestle with. Does my life affirm or deny my theology? It's easy to cite the Westminster Catechism. It's, it's difficult and takes a lifetime of striving and work by the grace of God to live out the Westminster Catechism. We just take, take the first question, right? All right, so first, you must live a godly life because how you live either affirms or denies the theology that you profess. And, and we never want to be comfortable with dissonance between our theology and our lives. We don't want to be comfortable with that. That's Paul's first argument. Second, you must live a godly life, Christian, because your entire life is under the training influence of the grace of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. So, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the main idea in these two verses is that grace trains us, instructs us. The word that's used here is uh, the word from where we get our word, pedagogy. It refers to the work of a teacher. And that's what grace does in the life of the Christian. It's in classical Greek, it was used to refer to the training of young children. It's also the word used in the book of Acts to refer to Moses having been trained in the school of the Egyptians. Uh, it's also used um, of Paul's being trained by uh, Gamaliel. And so this is a word that, that means training, instruction. And this is exactly what grace does. Grace comes and it trains and it instructs. It trains us specifically uh, what to denounce or deny, and then also what to embrace. It trains us what to deny. The first thing that grace does is that it trains us to deny ungodliness. You see that in verse 12. Grace trains us to deny ungodliness. So if, if, if you say, I love the grace of God, and I'm about the grace of God, I'm a grace person, that means you should be on the front lines denouncing ungodliness. Right? You tracking with me? That's what grace does. It trains us to denounce ungodliness. Here's ungodliness. It's simply a lack of reverence for God or a carelessness about God. So people that are about the grace of God ought to be the most reverent before God because this is what grace does. There's another aspect of this word ungodliness and it refers to living with no regard to God. And Jerry Bridges gives a helpful definition. He says ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence upon God. 
So ungodliness, then, is living practically as an atheist. You, you confess that you believe and love the gospel. You love Christ. You rejoice in grace. But you live your, your day-in, day-out life with no awareness of God. Grace trains us to denounce that, to, to reject that, so that we no longer live like that. Ungodliness is not um, acceptable for us. We don't want to live our lives uh, and get you know, to lunchtime and think, wow, I have not even thought about God today. Right? Grace trains us to, to reject that. Um, it doesn't train, like, we're still, we, sometimes we get to lunch and we think, wow, I haven't thought about God today. That happens. We're, we, we, we fall, right? We, we don't, um, the point is not that you do this flawlessly. The point is that you reject it. You don't want to do it anymore. Uh, that's the goal. That's the aim. So that's the first thing. Grace trains us to renounce this sort of ungodly living. Second, grace trains us to renounce worldly desires. Uh, these are desires or longings or wants that align with the prevailing interests of the world and stand in opposition to God. Worldly desires stand in opposition to God. In other words, a worldly desire is a desire or a want of something that God has forbidden. It's an illicit desire. Now, in our culture... There are books written about why you should pursue the illicit desire that you have in your heart. Right? We, there's the, the gay Christian movement that says if you desire this, if you desire, you have this desire for the same sex, that's implanted by God and you should pursue it. Christians are the first to say, I, I, we don't doubt that that desire is there. But there are all sorts of illicit desires in our hearts. And grace trains us to reject that, not to embrace it. And that's from, from um, any type of immorality, any type of illicit desire. Grace is at work. God's school of grace is training us to reject that, to daily die to that. So we are to die to reject that sort of uh, worldly Desire, illicit desires are to be rejected by God's people. Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate evil. Right? Ungodliness, illicit desires, that's wicked. It's evil. We don't want to live that way. So grace trains us what to renounce. It also trains us what to embrace. The first thing on the list is that grace, verse 12, trains us to live a life of self-control, or to live sensibly. The word here simply is self-control. It means having a sound or healthy mind. Now, what's a sound or healthy mind? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a mind that's able, by Galatians 5, the Spirit's presence, right? One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, Right, so the only person who can do what I'm about to read is the person who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's what it means. It means to curb your desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. That's self-control. 
curbing your desires and impulses so as to live a measured and orderly life. A life that's thoughtful. You don't just go throughout your day like a Cretan wild beast following your instincts. Right? You're thoughtful and careful. And by the grace of God, you're trying to bring in those illicit desires and passions. Grace trains us to do that. Second, grace trains us to live righteously. To embrace a life of upright living. That's horizontal living in conformity to God's law. It's justice and righteousness. That's the kind of life that should mark someone who's in the school of God's grace. They should be marked by a character of justice and righteousness. Now we should note that means justice and righteousness. We don't need adjectives on that. It's clearly justice and righteousness. The Christian is to live rightly in the world. And he's to live selflessly in the world for other people. That's uh, to live upright. So first, you live self-controlled. That's an inward idea. Then you live horizontally outward for other people, for God's glory. And then third, grace trains us to live godly in the present age. That is, it trains us to embrace a life that's vertically oriented towards God, but is obviously in union with God to the people around us. So this third dynamic of living godly reflects on our relationship to God. It's a a constant awareness. It's the opposite of ungodliness, right? Godliness and ungodliness. Godly living is living a life that is constantly aware of God's gracious presence in our lives. That's that's what grace is training us to do. Now you're sitting there saying, that's not like my life. I, I must not know grace. Well, how do you feel about that, right? Does it make you happy that you can go a day without, you know, considering God? Or you can get to lunch, since that's the obvious metaphor I keep going back to. Um, You make it to lunch without thinking about God. Do you like that? No, you don't. We don't like that. That's because you're in the school of God's grace, training you to deny that and to put on a godly life. That, that is in union with Christ and, and lives with the full awareness of God's presence. All right, fourth, grace trains us to live a life of hope. All right, so you see that in verse 13. So we're still, we're still in, in God's school of, of educative grace. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace trains us to uh, deny ungodliness and worldly desires, illicit desires. It trains us to live a godly life, an upright life, and it trains us to live self-controlled, but it also trains us to live lives of hope, of confident expectation of what? Well, of Christ's second coming. The blessed hope. In verse 11... It says, the grace of God has appeared. And then verse 13, Christians are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first advent, the first appearing is God's coming. And in that, we have experienced, John 1, grace upon grace. Or grace in place of grace. Right? That's what we're talking about here. But Christians live in the in-between looking for another appearing. And that is the appearing of Christ. And it's called our blessed hope. Our happy hope. Now why is it blessed and happy? 
because we live in the school of God's grace. And we have been taught by God through His Word and the work of the Spirit and the grace of God that God in Christ is no longer angry with us. Right? Grace teaches us that God is now kindly disposed to us, although we are are wicked sinners and we continue to fall short of God's glory. God in Christ is our Father. And like the prodigal, we, 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 we know that God stands with open arms to us. Every time we sin, we repent. And repentance is turning from sin, but it's turning to God. Right? We're, we're turning from sin and we're, we're turning to a God with arms wide open who embraces us because He is gracious. And so, Christians long for Christ's coming because we, uh, we know when He comes, it will be joy upon joy for us. It won't be that way for everyone. And we also know that. There are a host of cross-references we could look at, but we don't have time. I'll list you two. 2 Peter 3, 8-13. Revelation 22. Here's the point. Grace radically transforms us to deny what we once loved our flesh, and to live godly lives as we wait for the return of Christ. We live with that end in view, Christ's coming. If you want to accomplish some some major project, the experts tell you to start with the end in mind, right? And the reason they do that is because when you have the end in mind, it crystallizes your path, how to get there. That's what we're doing. Christians live with Christ's coming always in mind, And it brings light to our path. And it informs how we live. Now, do you see why this was such an atrocity for Titus 1.16? For these false teachers to come into Crete and say, if you have grace, you can live however you want to live. True grace transforms your living. It determines your steps. So, grace is at work training us. Now just listen to this. Grace does not make us lazy. Grace doesn't make us lazy. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of all the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. That's Paul talking about the educative grace of God. Grace empowers us. Grace is this unilateral work of God that empowers us to accomplish God's will. But it doesn't make us lazy, and it doesn't justify our sin. Grace empowers us and brings energy to our efforts to kill sin. And grow in greater conformity to Christ's likeness. To put it in a word, grace compels us to bring our lives and our theology into harmony, to unison. Now let me give you the third reason why you must live a godly life, according to Paul. Christians must live a godly life because the life of a Christian does not belong to Him. 
It belongs to Jesus Christ. You, Christian, must live a godly life because your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And that has radical implications for how you live and think. If you are a Christian, your life in its entirety, every dynamic, is now um, turned over to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Who, that's Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now notice three things about this. And notice them quickly, because we're running out of time. First, Jesus gave Himself for us. You see that in verse 14? He gave Himself for us. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is what we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus gave His life for us. That's why we're here this morning. So if you're here and you have no idea why we're singing what we're singing and why we're smiling the way we're smiling, it's not because we've got our lives figured out and we've got uh, you know, all our ducks in a row. We're here because we are great sinners, but God has given us a great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're celebrating that this Savior came and lived perfectly the life we should have lived, but He died the death that we deserve to die. And He did so, verse 14, for us. That's that's the atonement, friends. That's how we have forgiveness. He died in our place. But notice this. Paul gives two reasons why our Savior died for us. Verse 14, He gave Himself, first, to redeem us from every lawless deed. And then second, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Do you see that? Why did God save you? You hear people say that and we've all wondered that. Well, here's the answer, friend. God gave Jesus. Jesus came, gave His life to redeem you for two reasons, at least according to verse 14. To redeem you from lawless living. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He didn't give His life for you so that you can spend your days all by yourself in a monastery pondering how great God's grace is. He didn't give His self for you so that you can iron out your theology so that it's absolutely pristine and you can stand in in this sort of judgment over others who have a lesser theology. No. He gave His life to redeem you from lawless living and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now listen, that is beautiful and wonderful. He gave Himself to redeem you so that you are now the possession of Christ. That's a sweet word. The possession of Christ. This is the same language that's used of the Exodus. All the way back in Deuteronomy 7-6, the language is used. 
where God looks at His covenant people who He had just redeemed. Now, the Exodus was the single greatest act of redemption in the Old Covenant. And this is what God says in light of that great act of redemption. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. A holy people to the Lord your God. That's belonging language. The Lord your God has chosen you, listen to this, to be a people for His own possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, He chose you to be a people for His own possession. This is the same language that we see here in Titus 2.14. And then notice verse 11, Deuteronomy. Therefore, in light of God's possessing you, saving you, redeeming you, and, and making you holy, therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Because you're mine, I chose you, I loved you, I redeemed you. You're a precious possession to me. Deuteronomy 32, the Lord's portion is His people. The reason He did that is so that you would live a holy life. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 talks about the reason God redeemed His people was to make them His possession so that they would be a holy nation, people of priests. That is, that they would represent God to the lawless, sinless cultures that God had placed Israel in. Friends, we, we can look at Israel and, and sort of do some, some gloating over them. Right? It's easy to read about Israel moaning and groaning in the wilderness and think, you know, kind of like an armchair Moses, like, come on, people, you know. What, what's going on here? It's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to look over the Israelites and think, wow, they had witnessed such a great redemption. God's power had been poured out over, the, over Pharaoh and, and all of Egypt. And the sea had parted and, and God provided water and manna and quail. How in the world could they still moan and groan and live a life that was lousy and a wreck? Friends, living lives that contradict confess theology is nothing new. The Israelites were doing it thousands of years ago. And the tragedy is actually that you and I have experienced a far greater redemption than water being split open and frogs being everywhere and the power of God being demonstrated over the false gods of Egypt. You and I have experienced a far greater redemption. The Son of God. God became man and lived and died in your place and rose from the dead and reigns as Lord over the universe. And He he saved us. And He's called us out of darkness and into His kingdom. And we are now His people. The greatest tragedy would be that you and I would, like the Israelites, live lives that stood in, in, in stark contradiction to the wonder of the redemption that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. Friends, we have experienced a phenomenal redemption in Christ. And, and it's, it, it is an obligation on us. Grace comes to us and obliges us. It, it compels us to no longer live lousy, lawless lives, but to live lives that conform with our wonderful Redemption. Specifically, in closing, we belong to Christ. 
You belong to Christ. Just as the Israelites belong to God, we belong to Christ. And God's desire for His people has not changed. He, he, he redeemed the Israelites and saved them so that they would be a holy nation. Titus 2.14, Jesus redeemed His people um, so that they would be a holy people. Zealous for good works, the text says. Now, good works are works that you do selflessly for others. So, there's much to say about this, um, but we need to finish. So, why must you live a life that um, complements your theology? Why, why shouldn't we just plod along in our lives and, and, and say, hey, God is extremely gracious. It, it's been demonstrated with power in Christ Jesus. We can live however we want to live. Well, because once you have experienced the grace of God in Christ, you are no longer your own. And you have entered into the uh, training regiment of the grace of God, which is at work in every believer to train us to denounce the things that God hates and to embrace a life that brings glory and honor to Christ. My friends, that is a lofty goal, which is why we're here. We come to sing and worship because we fall short of God's standard so frequently. But by the grace of God, I pray that you and I could continue and press on and, and, and gradually, by the grace of God, shrink that chasm that often exists between our life and our theology. May the Lord help us to do that. Father, we do confess that we stand in great need of your grace. Apart from your grace, we are hopeless. We stand uncovered in the midst of your holy presence. But Father, in Christ, we stand fully forgiven, pardoned of our sin. And so we pray, Lord, that we would enjoy more and more the redemption that you've accomplished for us in Christ. And we also pray, Lord, that you would help us to bring our lives more into conformity to the wonderful grace, the wonderful redemption that we have experienced. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.